Scout Nation, have you signed up to take your certified water technologist designation exam? If you have, you've received a mock exam copy, and I have answered each one of the questions in that mock exam, letting you know which ones are the best answers. I share tips and tricks about the exam, making sure that you sign up easily and confidently. And when you go in to take the examination, you have got certain things working for you because you're prepared. To find out more, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep. Once again, that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep. Welcome to the Scaling Up H2O podcast, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. I'm Trace Blackmore, the host of the Scaling Up H2O podcast. And Nation, I apologize about last week's intro. I can't tell you how many people contacted me in one way or another saying that they did not enjoy that April Fool's joke. For those of you that did not listen to last week's episode, I had an April Fool's joke where I came on and I said we were going off the air. And I have to say, from all of the people that contacted me to say that was just a cruel joke, I know that you guys really enjoy the Scaling Up H2O podcast, and I can't tell you how much that means to me. So sorry about the cruel joke. I thought it was funny, and I really hope that uh, you got some humor out of it as well. But I tell you, by doing that, I realize how much you all love this show I promise that I take that as an honor to be the host of the Scaling Up H2O podcast. I look at myself as the tribe leader of the Scaling Up Nation. We are all part of a community, and it's all about community. It's all about us doing what we can to make this incredible profession better each and every day that we are in it. And again, Sorry for the April Fool's joke. You know, speaking of community, one of my favorite things to do is to actually connect with all the people in the Scaling Up Nation. And we have a couple of opportunities each and every year to do that. Of course, that's at events that I am attending. And normally that's an Association of Water Technologies event or some other organization where I am either teaching, hosting, presenting, or maybe just attending. I love it when people come up and let me know that you do get something out of this show. I especially love it when people tell me what they want to hear on this show. After almost 250 episodes, making sure that I'm talking about the right stuff and getting new material is something we've always been able to do, but I am terrified that eventually I'm just going to say, I've got nothing left. I can't think of anything else. And then that April Fool's show, that will be a reality. Let's not allow that to happen. And the way we can do that is for you to let me know what you want to hear on this show. Do you have an idea of something you want me to explore on the show? Well, let me know about that. Is there something that you want answered on this show? 
Let me know about that. Is there somebody that you want me to interview? Please let me know about that as well. Super easy to let me know any and all of those things. That's by going to scalinguph2o.com. And then two ways you can get that information from me once you're on our webpage. Very easily, there will be a pop-up button that says send voicemail on the right-hand side of the screen. You simply press that and you will be able to record your voice on whatever device you are on and let me know exactly what your question is or whatever you want to let me know. A lot of times I air those on the podcast so you can hear your voice on the podcast. The second way is to navigate over to our show ideas page, fill that out, let us know exactly what you want us to know, and we will do our best to accommodate. Thank you in advance for all the people that are getting ready to do that. And also speaking about community, coming up in the very near future, next week, we are going to have our second hang of 2022. The hang is where we all get together on a Zoom call and we just have fun. I've got a few announcements in the beginning, and then I break you up into breakout rooms. And this is where you get to meet new people in your industry. You never know who you're going to meet on a hang, and you never know how they're going to be able to solve the question you don't even have yet. They're going to be the key to solving the issue that you haven't even experienced yet. And today it's harder and harder to get together with our fellow water treaters. So this is just one easy way from the comfort of wherever you do your video calling, you can meet some new people and have some fun doing it. That's gonna be on April 14th, just next week. And to register for that, you can go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash hang. Something else we've been talking about on the show, and if you listen to episode 244, we talked to Steve Spear of Team World Vision, and one of their missions is to try to end the water crisis. There's so many people out there on the globe that do not have good access, easy access to clean drinking water. So each and every year, they put on a 6K to bring attention bring awareness, and also get people to help. And you can help in so many ways. The way we're asking you to help this year is participate in the 6K. You might be asking, why is it a 6K? Normally things are a 5K. Well, that's a great question. And it's six kilometers because that is the average distance people in third world countries have to travel in order to get clean drinking water. And when I say clean drinking water, it is not really that clean. It's just access to water, period. So we walk or run or however you want to do it, six kilometers on May 21st. It is a Saturday. You can do it from wherever you are just to bring awareness to this valuable cause. 
Now, I'd love for you to do this with your team, with your company. And if you do not have a team to sign up under, we've got that taken care of too, because you are part of the Scaling Up Nation. And you can go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash 6K, and it will take you directly to a team page that we've created so we can all do this as part of Team Scaling Up. Again, we're a community and we're going to do this as a community and we are going to bring awareness to this so important topic and we are going to get involved and share what we're doing with each other so we can bring even more awareness. Now, for those of you that want to give to that cause, we are trying to raise a small amount of $10,000 this year. So you can do that by also going to that same page, which is scalinguph2o.com forward slash 6K. It's going to be fun. We're going to be talking about this for the weeks to come. We're going to make sure that we've got some social media hashtags so we can all share in the fun as we are participating in this very valuable experience. Well, Nation, I want to bring on our next guest. So if you will, here's our interview. Scaling Up Nation, my lab partner today is Jerry Angelilli. Jerry, welcome to the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate the invitation and it's glad to be here and be in contact with you. Uh, Jerry, you and I have been bumping into each other for years at the Association of Water Technologies, and I, I can't think of a better time to bump into anybody, but this past year at the Providence, Rhode Island Convention, we were all so ready to get out with each other and see each other again. Wouldn't you agree? I definitely agree. I felt like I was in quarantine, even though I never got sick. Yeah. But holed up in our home. Isolation is probably a better term than quarantine. I think that is a good way to put it. And uh, it was just so good to see you, all the other people there. We were well overdue for getting together in person again. Absolutely. Well, Jerry, I've got so many questions that I want to ask you, but I want to make sure that the Scaling Up Nation knows who we're talking to. So do you mind letting the Scaling Up Nation know a little about yourself? That's no problem. I was born in uh, a suburb of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, raised in a small little town, McKees Rock, directly west of the city, and attended a small high school, and uh, eventually went to the University of Pittsburgh, and I was a pre-med student, majored in biology, and minored in chemistry, and psychology was another one. That was part of a possible career path in either psychology or psychiatry. Uh, but right around my junior, senior year, I kind of felt disenchanted with, with academia and the thought of another four years and extra schooling and just didn't appeal to me. I decided to actually go into the real world. So started working uh, at, right after college, then got married, had three children, and we now have, they're all grown and independent. We have four grandchildren, my wife, Linda, and I. And... Uh, I think we're going to probably get into my work experience at some point, so I'll just leave that part out. 
Well, that's actually where we're going next, Jerry. We're we're going to go to uh, to to you as an industrial water treater. So you said you were you were in school. You got fed up with academia. Decided to go out into the real world. Why on earth did you choose water <laughs> treatment? Well, I, I got there through a roundabout way. Once I decided against uh, a, a medical career, I, I was kind of open to anything, and the first job opportunity I could do to support myself was answering an ad to uh, from an insurance company. And I actually sold uh, life insurance for a year. And uh, I just discovered that was not my career path. <laughs> so uh, my father, who was in the steel industry his whole life, said, well, they're hiring management trainings at the mill. Why don't you try it at the job? So I did. And uh, I, I went through that year program at LTV Steel in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, of all places. That's again, that's outside of Pittsburgh. And uh, spent three years in the steel industry and eventually uh, got laid off when foreign imports were really hurting the U.S. steel economy and steel treatment. So uh, being married with two kids is like you can't just sit around. So through an employment agency, you got to lead for a pharmaceutical sales job. And you know, sometimes things happen for a reason. We had a major snowstorm, and the recruiter the, the, for the pharmaceutical company that was scheduled to come to Pittsburgh couldn't make it. The, and he wasn't going to be back for a couple of months. I said, I can't wait. And the recruiter said, did you ever hear of a company called Best Laboratories? And I said, as a matter of fact, I had. Uh, they were one of the companies that serviced the area of the plant of the steel industry I was in. And their coking operations for water treatment and actually treating coke ovens. And I said, I've heard very good things about them. And he said, well, they're interested in hiring somebody in water treatment. And I said, hey, I got a degree in biology and chemistry, and I, I like water. I drink it almost every day. <laughs> 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 it was like, I, I'll give it a shot. And uh, they asked me if I wanted more heavy industry or C&I which is commercial, institutional. And I said, well, what's the difference? Well, one, you're going into steel mills, large chemical plants. The other one, you'll be wearing a tie most likely and going to hospitals, universities, office buildings. I go, after three years in a dirty place with a steel mill, I'll take the C&I market. <laughs> so I interviewed with Beth Bentech and got hired. And that was my initiation into the water treatment industry in 1978. Well, Jerry, I want to ask you about that. So in 1978, you got hired. It was your very first day as a water treater. Tell us about that. Yes. I flew into Harrisburg. Of course, the first day of living in Pittsburgh, but the job opening and the one I was hired for was in Harrisburg, which would have entailed a move. First days are, you know, just orientation, kind of getting to know everybody. Uh, introducing, doing all the paperwork, getting everything signed. And then uh, it was more the second day where I actually started to get into meat and potatoes. And my boss at the time, Joe Wallace in Central PA, was very, very strong technically. He put a lot of emphasis on technology of the business. And he took me to a lo one of their local customers and showed me around at what they do. And that's when the, it was like, Man, this is, this could work. Because it was Hershey Medical Center. I know I can say that now because I don't have that. 
been long gone, that business, as far as anybody I know. So uh, I just thought it was fascinating. They were actually had a little travel lab and they were, they were plating with, you know, heating up agar, putting up petri dishes and pouring the agar and then injecting the cooling tower water samples into the agar in different dilutions. And I was like, biology, here I come. Chemistry, <laughs> no problem. So that was the introduction. And what was your first year like? The emphasis was on, again, learning technology first. We'll teach you how to sell stuff. You know, that comes, you have to have a working knowledge of this business. So the first year was doing mostly training for the technology they handed me when I felt like they could, several accounts that were very strong, stable accounts that I could start to service. So the first year was involved mostly with servicing and learning about the business. (laughs) They had a very interesting system at FedSentex You had to pass a test and get score above 80% on this test to be invited to come to the home office for higher level technical training. You you had to qualify to come to technical training school instead of just piecemealing you spending everybody. So my boss said that what you really need to do in the next six months is concentrate on learning everything you can about this the technical ends of it, all learning, memorizing formulas, how to set up and design programs for boiler systems. It's giving you a set of parameters. Design the boiler program with products, how much, what's the cost going to be, and same thing with cooling. So my first year was spent learning and servicing existing customers, then moved into the sales process. And how long were you with Bets and Tech? I was with them about 14 and a half years, almost 15. My career with them was split. Maybe he did a little too good of a job because after a couple of years in sales and servicing, more close to four, from like 78 to almost 82. You, you may not believe this, but if you've ever worked for a larger company, you would in a heartbeat. There seemed to be a communication gap, that's to put it mildly, between internal engineering and salesmen on the ground, or the actual representative. Surely not. <laughs> Surely so. And so <laughs> they thought, you know what might be a good idea is if we put some people in that had actual sales and service experience and showed a really good aptitude for the technology, to bring them in as staff technical engineers to deal with the field people. And I was selected along with one of the two or three other gentlemen to come in and try that role. And it proved to be extremely successful because we had a empathy, not just a sympathy for what they were doing. We knew what they were going through. And so we would help them through any problems they were having on the phone or in writing. And it just worked wonderfully. And I spent about five years internally in that role in their home office in Horsham. And then of all things, they had a, I guess it would call it a disruptive event where you lose a district manager and two reps in the territory in New Jersey all within six months. And they said, we need to stop the bleeding. We need somebody experienced to get out there and solidify these accounts. And you're the guy that's <laughs> 
You've been selected. <laughs> you've been selected. Uh, you've been you've been voluntold. Uh, but it worked out really well. It was extremely uh, fruitful. I did some of my best sales efforts and sold Princeton University, which was the big feather in my cap at the time. Princeton Medical Center and RCA Technical Center and American Cyanamid Plant, and so and uh, a couple other different nice. Uh, when you're dealing with commission and salary, the more new sales you can make, obviously, that, that never hurts your, your bottom line. And plus, it was just rewarding, just dealing from a position of confidence, knowing the technical end and also being familiar enough with sales process to be successful. Jerry, what would you say one of your most memorable experiences is when you were with Betts? One of the ones was not just in the sales process, but I think in helping, when I was the staff engineer, I was responsible for the, the west half of the United States, from Chicago down to Texas, all the way to the everything west. And uh, for the period of time that I was their engineer, and of course, I can't take any of the credit, but I can take some of it, that we, we led the company and increased sales for those four years with over 20% sales growth every year. And uh, again, I think a lot of it was to deal with the fact that I provided them with assistance without any kind of being denigrating, if that makes sense. Tried to lift people up rather than if they were doing something wrong, we worked through it. We'll help you through this. You don't need to know everything, but we can work through this together. And I think that attitude really helped out. And then there came a time where you left Betts. Tell us about that. Yeah, interesting. Uh, it was a personal family situation where at that point we had moved to New Jersey. My family was back in Pittsburgh and I expressed the desire to go back to that area of the country. And I would have preferred to stay with them to see if there was any way that I could be transferred to that area. And, and after a year, I said, uh, you know, if that's not possible, we've made a family decision. We're going to go back to that area with or without Beth, then I'd be prefer, I'd prefer to be with Beth. My brother-in-law told me at the time, well, that's career suicide. They're not going to, they're probably just going to fire you. <laughs> well, that's how I feel. I've always been upfront and honest with them. And that's not, this isn't the time to change. And after a year, they tried and it had to be approved through my district manager at the time and the one in Pittsburgh. And they decided that they didn't feel it was there in their best interest. So I found a job with another company, which was uh, at the time Baker Performance Chemicals or ChemLink as they were known at the time. And the neat thing was, not only was I changing territories, and I explained this to them, I was also now changing my area of work. And I would be going from CNI into heavy industrial with ChemLink. So I said, I will not be competing with you at all, even though I'm not in my territory. And they appreciated it. It made a very smooth transition. And two years with ChemLink, and I got recruited by uh, uh, Ashland Chemical, Drew at the time. And then uh, in a couple of years with them, did won the Drew Star Award for increased sales. And, and then uh, after that, was recruited to uh, my last position with ChemAqua in Irving, Texas. Interesting part of that story was the president of the company was Steve Haberly, and 
he was one of those district managers when I was a staff engineer that I had helped through their process. And so he appreciated my work back then and thought I would be a good addition to their team. Well, that's when I met you when you were working for Kim Aqua. And were you volunteering for AWT before you were with them? Actually, the year before, and I, when I was with Croft, that was when I first got involved with AWT. Uh, the, the connection there is we worked closely with National Colloid Company, and we did a lot of work with Sue Ray, who's their, basically their product manager. And so I, she was very strong in cooling, but not so much in the boilers. So I would help her out with the boiler product question. So she told me, well, you know, AWTs really need some help in their technical committee. I think you should join and be on that in the boiler committee. And that's how it started. So tell us about that. You you got information from Sue, and, and Sue's great. I've served on a couple of committees with her. She said, we need help as an association of water technologies in the technical area, specifically with boilers. Yes. How did you reach out? How did you get involved with that? And then where did you go from there? So the first one was the, uh, you probably remember this, when they had it at Colorado Springs. I think that was in 2007, and I actually was going to do a presentation on boiler inspection technology using video with uh, and for small companies that those those machines that the big companies and the majors brought in to impress everybody on doing visual video boiler inspection tubes with boroscopes uh, that was available to smaller companies because there was a, the companies that rented the equipment for a reasonable amount of money. So you could provide the same service as a small local water treatment company that the majors could provide to your boiler customers. And so that was the transition of how I got involved. Unfortunately, right at the time when I made the career change to Kimaqua, so I, I could not put that presentation on, but I did manage to join the boiler committee. And now eventually became the, I was a co-chair with John Zabrida for a few years and then took the position as chair of that subcommittee. We refer to John as Uncle John here on the show. There you go. Johnny Zed, as Angela called him. Yeah, John's been great. He, he and I live in the same city and we used to see each other more when we were at AWT functions across the country than we did just living seven miles apart. So we've tried to improve upon that. And John and I get together just about every month for uh, a lunch just to see how things are going. I think this is important for people starting out in this industry. One of my first area managers, well, the first area manager I had in Central PA, told me that we were sitting there and he said, you're in a whole new area of business. I'm going to give you a piece of advice. I said, what's that? He said, get through a year. Whatever happens, don't quit. Struggle through, do whatever you have to do, but get through one full year. If you can succeed one year in this business, you'll never have to worry about having a job again the rest of your life because the water treatment business is here to stay. It's that important. And I followed that advice, and he was absolutely correct. I think that's very sound advice. Jerry, was there ever a time you wish you went to medical school? Uh, Wow, that's a great question. Uh, I think there was some initial uh, 
periods where I thought it would have been that I missed a career. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of prestige associated with uh, medical school. But what really solidified it was I had a cousin and a friend of their family that both went to medical school and became doctors in the Detroit area. And I attended a wedding after they were both through medical school and into their careers. And I got to see them together. And they said, they looked, pulled me aside and said, I don't know what you knew at that time, but I wish you had told us because this is not the career we thought it was going to be. And uh, the whole system is, is kind of messed up. I, I just, that was a vindication because at the time, uh, I was happy doing what I was doing. Yeah, that's definitely a vindication to hear a doctor say that, that maybe I should have gone into water treatment. How about that? Jerry, this can be a lonely field. We're driving to customer to customer, and a lot of times we're running tests in a mechanical room that's probably not the the most lavish surroundings. And sometimes we might wonder, what the heck did I decide to do with my life? I agree with you. I think it's the best job ever. And if we can get over those little things, it really is rewarding. But my question to you is, we do spend a lot of time by ourselves. What is something that you did to make sure that it wasn't alone time or it wasn't wasted time, that it was allowing you to learn something or or get to the next customer? What were some of the tips that you did with all of the alone time that we have? Again, uh, you you have to go back. There's a lot better opportunities today to spend alone time in the car uh, with the, the technologies that's available. You have a cell phone with a hands-free operation. You can talk to customers. You have all that. When I started, none of that existed. We didn't even have pagers. We drove to one place to another. And three times a day, we were supposed to call the office to see if we had any issues. But the time you're in the car driving, by yourself. There were no uh, electronic books available. You could get some things on tape. Tapes were important. So other than listening to music, positive motivational tapes and anything like that helps you when you're in your car. And that got me through the alone and long drive time. Uh, I put approximately 3,500 to 4,000 miles a month when I was in Central PA. I think that's the key is find something that you can listen to when you're in that alone time that builds you up and doesn't tear you down. There was no scaling up H2O. How did you survive? I, it, it, it was tough. <laughs> <laughs> but we managed to work, you know, soldier through it. <laughs> but like I said, what you have available today, like scaling up and, and, and different things you could listen to in the car. Man, fill your head with as much positive information and motivation as you possibly can. Because you know there's enough negative. You hear enough no's, it's great to hear that that's only one step closer to the next yes. That has gotten me so far when I've gotten rejections that, hey, I'm just one step closer. So hopefully, Nation, you're out there using that same tip. Jerry, I got to ask, you have had to have seen a lot of changes throughout your water treatment career. What are some of the biggest changes that you've seen from when you started to now? One of them was what we just talked about. The technology that's available today just for helping 
you service people, the, the technology of having a phone with you all the time, that you're in constant communication, that's one. But the other part is the technology in the application of water treatment programs. To see a conductivity boiler controller back in my day was, was rare. And a lot of times to see a cooling conductivity controller was even more rare. Generally, you, if you were fortunate enough to have a customer that had a conscientious operator that would actually run their tests <laughs> regularly and make adjustments, then you were, had better chances of success. With the technology now that we have, automated systems, automated feed and control systems, the technology of moving to like solid chemicals, uh, it, it was a joke. When I first started, one of the sales meetings, national sales meetings we had at Beth Zentech, one of the district managers made a joke about the future of water treatment. We're going to sell, and he pulled out a little kitchen sponge. He said, we're going to put all our chemicals on a sponge and then just throw it in an empty drum and fill it with water. And then you can pump it into your system. Well, he was making a joke, but, but he actually came up with a brilliant idea, which I think was the beginning of solid chemistry for water treatment. So I think those two things, the, the changes, and, and obviously they always say, oh, everybody sells the same chemicals. It's the same thing in the drum. It's who puts it in. Well, it's not always true. There are always research being done as for better and better chemical technology for water treatment. And when you look at it over 42 years that I did, it's amazing how, how much it's changed. I mean, I, I, we were still allowed to use chromates when I first started. So, you know how far back that is. I believe it was the early 80s. Yeah, it's when they banned it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All the advances in the technology for personal things, but also in our industry, have just been amazing to watch and exciting. So, Jerry, tell me about you had your first probably analog controller on a cooling tower. Did that just rock your world? Did that just change your life? Yes. It was like, wow, I don't have to worry about a operator doing all this. We, we can go in and see the, see the system and it can be monitored. You can make changes just by walking past this controller, reading the conductivity and seeing if something's wrong. And I'm betting it was a more one controller. It, it absolutely was. <laughs> and there's still some out there today, and they're working strong. Oh, yeah. And the boiler one that they came up with with the trap sample, and we had, we had many of those. And they worked well if you took the time to learn how they work. Something you and I both experienced that I'm willing to bet most of our listeners just had no clue that this ever happened, but it was 1999, and everybody was terrified that all the microprocessor controllers that were out there were going to stop working <laughs> because Y2K. everybody had the forethought. Exactly. We, we, who would think? Put four digits in. No, we're going to save time and just do two <laughs> digits. And of course, everything was going to stop working. What was your world like back then? Everybody was panicking. And uh, it turned out to be a lot smoother transition than anybody realized. But I think that's why they made such an awareness of it. People went on, it's almost like the moon landing. I mean, once they had that goal, 
we have to fix our computer programming to do a fix for this coming up. And so what they did was patch first. They patched the program so that they could extend it another 10 years. And they figured that by that time, they could turn over all the new technology would be make a transition that they can bring in the software to correct it. Yeah, I was only in the industry for a few short years before that happened. And I remember thinking, what, what's going on? Every single one of my accounts has gone to shut down. And I remember we had to change microprocessor chips out. And that was my new job. We changed hundreds of all these chips out. It was crazy. And that was the fix. It was the temporary fix. was changing the chips. And like you said, until you can get the point where you had to change the controller and it would come with the new one that were already set up with four digits rather than two. Jerry, you've got some experience in an area that many people have, have never even thought about before, but you hold a couple of patents. Can you take us through what that is all about? How, how did you decide, okay, I'm going to invent something that isn't around and I'm going to be the first person to, to make it come to be. And then how do you go through the process to get something patented? And what's it like after you get a patent? I think to preface this, though, I need to explain a little bit about how that works. Now, I always thought it was a disadvantage having a last name that started with A, because I always had to sit in the front row when they seated us <laughs> alphabetically as kids. And you're the one that's called on first. And some, there's some advantage, but a lot of disadvantage. The one advantage when it comes to patents, when you get a joint patent with several people that are involved in projects, they list your name alphabetically. Same thing's true with any type of publication. To give you an example, my son was, uh, who eventually became a doctor, one of my sons, uh, he, he was doing a kind of a medical internship at the University of Pittsburgh working with a cardiologist before he got into medical when he was still in college in the summer position. And so he worked on this genetic paper with this doctor who had been working on it for years. <laughs> While my son was there, they finished the research project and wrote the paper. Well, the paper then became Angelili et al. <laughs> Even though he was a student working on the project, they listed everybody alphabetically. Well, the same thing happened with his patent. I was part of a group that applied for this patent when I was with Imaqua. And so the patent is listed. Both patents are listed as Angelili et al. Now, the other names are there. And they all contributed, and not just to being humble, they contributed a lot more than I did. But the initial application was for oil field. That's how it started. And we were called, I was called into an office because when I first started with Imaqua, they we were going around giving assignments and chlorine dioxide came up and in our engineering group. They said, anybody have any experience with chlorine dioxide? And I was the only one that raised my hand because I did with Aspen Chemical. And they said, well, you're our new chlorine dioxide guy. So I became the man for any kind of chlorine dioxide application. So I got called in with the president of the company in this oil field company they owned. And they said, can you put chlorine dioxide in these uh, water impoundments in the oil industry for fracking? And could that be something that you can settle solids and disinfect water? I, uh, 
I don't think it's going to help settle solids unless it's iron-based. It might. But as far as disinfection, absolutely. So I got involved in a team to work on chlorine dioxide application to water impoundment, spending a couple of long days and evenings in Arkansas in some water pond, feeding chlorine dioxide and seeing what would happen and running tests. Eventually, it got to a point where they brought a group together and came up with a system, portable trailer, to treat water for the fracking business, mostly for the initial frack, the uh, what they call the you know the water used in, in the hydraulic fracturing process, and that has to be disinfected. They were using upwards of 150 250 parts of of uh, glutaraldehyde for a disinfection because they would get a lot of bacteria growth in these wells that they were putting in. So the, you're, you're pumping systemic poisons into the, underneath the ground. So th- the idea of using chlorine dioxide, which would eventually dissipate and be you know, reduced and, and to chloride is not a problem. And so we did a lot of experiments at work and came up with this process of using chlorine dioxide in treating this water. That's part of the one patent because that was the method of treating this water. The other patent had to do with the process where we came up with a trailer where we controlled every parameter of the water process so that we could treat it and every drop of water got to see that amount of chlorine dioxide as it was being done at a real-time continual basis. So the two things, the process and the the equipment itself and the method were the two patents. And then once you get a patent, what do you have to do? You have to work to a patent attorney and it was rejected. Our patent, what they do then is they go through and see what they call uh, existing similar technology. So if there's something that they have other patents that seem like they're very similar or the same, they will deny your application. Well, then this starts the process, and you have to change what they, the patent office says are, are too similar to previous patents, and then you have to change the wording or change the technology so that it's dissimilar. And it took about four or five different iterations before it was approved. But once it's approved, it becomes a patent. Jerry, I have to ask, because I know you are very strong on education and making sure that people that are in this industry are all that they can be. So for people listening here today, maybe they're just starting out, maybe they're getting ready to take some sort of certification exam. What are some things that they should be doing? What are some things that they should be reading? How should they prepare to be better? What do you recommend? I think at one time when I started, it was the Best Handbook, the Nalco Handbook, and the Drew Handbook. And all those are excellent resources. But if you want a certification, the the industry standard has become the CWT, the Association of Water Technology. And their technical and training manual is very excellent when it comes to a generalized knowledge of all aspects of this business. And it's all practical. Some of the other handbooks can get into the weeds at times, get a little in-depth in the places that really aren't necessary. But uh, the AWT manual is at Kemp Aqua. 
is what we use to train all of our reps, both domestic and international. And so I would suggest going through that manual cover to cover. And wherever you're weak, spend more time on the sections where you feel you're weak and less time on the sections that you feel that you have strength in. So when you do take the exam, you're going to be well-rounded. And if there's some area you know nothing about, that's the chapter you want to read the most. But don't dispel those other handbooks. I think that's some great advice. Jerry, I think several of those are available online for free now, aren't they? You can get the excerpts. I believe you can. I think that would be my next advice. One of the nicknames I got at my last position was the Google Meister. Because, you know, we all don't know things. Like, uh, you have to admit that. I, I would tell people, you know you're an expert when you look and look somebody in the eye squarely and say, I don't know, with conviction. So, if you don't know something, look it up and learn about it. And Google is a great technical tool. And one of the places they'll send you to is QS Handbook or Nalco or one of those. Jerry, you mentioned saying the words, I don't know. I want to talk about that for a second, because when I work with people that are new in this industry, they are just terrified of saying the words to a customer, I don't know. Help me spread the word that that's not bad to say. No, that is. But it needs a follow-up, but I will find an answer for you. It has to come with that because they're depending on you. They're asking the question for a reason because they need to know as well. But never dispel the question, but if you don't try to explain something you have no knowledge on. But you can learn. And that's what they want you to do. They want you to provide the answer. It doesn't necessarily mean immediately. That's an excellent point. Hey, let's move on to the lightning round questions. Oh, boy. Here we go. You're, you're going to love them. You're going to love them. This, these are questions that I ask of all of my guests. Okay. So uh, here we go. You now have the ability to go back in time and talk to your former self on your very first day as a water treater. What advice would you give yourself? Uh, I used to have a sign in my office that there's two rules of stress management. Rule number one is don't sweat the small stuff. And rule number two is it's all small stuff. And not to dispel uh, and to just belittle any of the, the negative things or the stressful things that happen in your life, but you need to, to settle down and, and realize that it's not the end of the world. And, you, and worrying about something has no uh, positive outcome. Uh, action is what provides positive outcome, not worrying. So be less stressful, take more action to solve the problem, and don't worry as much. Great advice. Jerry, what are the last few books that you've read? Well, the book of Matthew, (laughs) I I tend to uh, have a daily Bible reading. So all kidding aside, that's that's the book. So I I spent a lot of time there. But I, I have, because of my, the most recent actual book that I read was called The Bosses Club. And it had a lot of meaning to me because it was in reference to the great Johnstown flood in Western Pennsylvania and how that actually happened. And so it, it was a very enlightening, interesting book. 
And uh, other than that, I have, again, in my my love of music and industry, my one of my favorite brands is the Almond Brothers. So there's a book by Greg Almond called My Cross the Bear, which I've read, and one by his brother, Dwayne's only daughter, Gladriel Almond, and that's called Please Be With Me, because it was a tribute to her father. So those are the three. Jerry, when they make a movie about your life, who do you want them to cast Jerry as? Now, if we're talking present day, because I've been, I have a resemblance to Richard Dreyfuss. He's a great actor. All right. But I, I, would, I would choose him. I would, I would prefer it to be like Al Pacino, but I don't think that's well, They can both audition. You can judge. My last question, you can now talk with anybody throughout history. Who would it be with and why? I've heard this question asked of other people, and a lot of people, I think, uh, spiritually say that they would prefer to spend at least that time with Jesus, and and I would agree with that, but I think this is more of a practical situation of a a human being that somebody looked up to, and I, I thought about the great scientists of the past and because of the love for science, and the one person that I really thought about most recently is Kerry Mullis. He was the Nobel Prize winning scientist who developed the PCR test. And I, I would just like to sit down with him and, and interview him in his process. I've read some things about him and his approach to science uh, is the most pure I've seen in a modern scientist for a long time. That would be an amazing conversation, just like this was an amazing conversation. Uh, oh, thank you. Oh, absolutely. Jerry, thank you so much for coming on the program and sharing so much about your career and inspiring so many others. Well, you're very welcome. I appreciate this opportunity. Scout Up Nation, that was Jerry Angelilli one of the most robust water treatment careers that I've been able to interview. And folks, if you know somebody that's been in the industry for some time, please sit down with them, maybe share a beer with them, ask them what it has been like throughout their career. Had you experienced that Y2K thing? That was so much a part of my life for almost a two-year period It consumed everything, and I experienced that. And I can have a conversation with Jerry because he experienced that. But when you have a conversation when somebody experienced something before you came into the industry, you realize there's always things that are disrupting our regular day-to-day all the time. And the fact that we can have a conversation with each other and learn what the experiences were surrounding that means that we can apply that to whatever the issue we are dealing with. So please have those valuable conversations with other people that have been in the industry before you, because I think it allows you to see that whatever you're dealing with is not as bad, and there's always something to learn from experiencing the process. Speaking of experience, we're now going to go to James McDonald for a brand new Thinking on Water. Welcome to Thinking on Water with James, the segment where we don't give you the answers, we give you the topics and questions for you to think about, drop by drop. Now let's get to it. 
In this week's episode, we're thinking about the order corrosion coupons are installed. What is the proper order? What does flow have to do with order? If you have great corrosion rates, why does order matter? If you have terrible corrosion rates, why does it matter? What is the science behind the order? Where would you find the proper order when in doubt? Would there be a reason to install one out of the standard order? Take this week to think about the proper order of corrosion coupons and why it matters. Be sure to follow hashtag TOW22 and hashtag ScalingUpH2O to share your thoughts on each week's Thinking on Water. I'm James McDonald, and I look forward to learning more from you. Nation, it is hard to believe, but next week we are going to be celebrating our fifth anniversary. Five years of the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Imagine, what was your life like before the Scaling Up H2O podcast? I know mine was a lot more boring, and I know I had a lot less friends out there. This podcast has just allowed me to meet so many of you and share experiences and really rally about this incredible career that we all share in industrial water treatment. I would not trade that for the world, and I'm sure we're going to have at least five more years to come. So Nation, stay tuned for that special anniversary episode next week. Until that time, take care of each other, and I'll see you next week. Scale Up Nation, life is too short to do it alone. And that's why I have been in a mastermind for over a decade. It's why I started the Rising Tide Mastermind, and it's why the Rising Tide Mastermind is so successful. You do not need to face your problems alone. You don't need to face your issues alone. You can learn from others' experiences so you don't have to repeat their mistakes and you can get further faster because others are giving you a hand. To find out more, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind to see if this is the right group for you.